Hello, and uh, welcome to the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Just wanted to put a quick little thing right up front here. This was not planned. It, it was not. This is just an unfortunate circumstance. The uh, This story, the first part of this story delves into some negative stereotypes of, you know, various cultures and races. And uh, while I don't believe it delves into straight up racism, it, it flirts pretty close with it. The second half of the story kind of just jumps right in. There's there's a word, again, used. And while this one does not inform the story and it doesn't really have anything to do with the story and it's just the main character being an asshole because he's just an asshole, like, I'm not editing it out again. Because, as I said in my, in, in a, in my Twitter thread, at Weird Tales Pod, I don't believe that the mistakes of the past should be papered over. I think they should be known about and they should be learned from. So this was a thing that happened. This was the way that people talked and the way that it was written. And that doesn't excuse it. And Caliban agrees with me. I don't know if you heard that or not. He agrees with me. <sighs> I'm going to have to kick him out again. Um, okay, seriously, be quiet. This, <laughs> this is my life. All right, well, just know that it's there, and I didn't edit it out because I don't believe it should be papered over and forgotten about. I think it should be learned from. All right, on with the story. Even as the American threw up his rifle, Yar Ali fired point-blank from the hip with deadly effect, hurled his empty rifle into the horde, and went down the steps like a hurricane, his three-foot kyber knife shimmering in his hairy hand. Into his gusto for battle went real relief that his foes were human. A bullet ripped the turban from his head, but an Arab went down with a split skull beneath the hillman's first shearing stroke. A tall Bedouin clapped his gun muzzle to the Afghan side, but before he could pull the trigger, Clarney's bullet scattered his brains. The very number of the attackers hindered their onslaught of the big Afridi, whose tigerish quickness made shooting as dangerous to themselves as to him. The bulk of them swarmed about him, striking with scimitar and rifle stock, while others charged up the steps after Steve. At that range, there was no missing. The American simply thrust his rifle muzzle into a bearded face and blasted it into a ghastly ruin. The others came on, screaming like panthers. And now, as he prepared to expend his last cartridge, Clarney saw two things in one flashing instant. A wild warrior who, with froth on his beard and a heavy scimitar uplifted, was almost upon him, and another who knelt on the floor drawing a careful bead on the plunging Yar Ali. Steve made an instant choice and fired over the shoulder of the charging swordsman, killing the rifleman and voluntarily offering his own life for his friends, for the scimitar was swinging at his own head. But even as the Arab swung, grunting with the force of the blow, his sandaled foot slipped on the marble steps and the curved blade, veering erratically from its arc, clashed on Steve's rifle barrel. In an instant, the American clubbed his rifle, and as the Bedouin recovered his balance and again heaved up the scimitar, Clarney struck with all his rangy power, and stock and skull shattered together. Then a heavy ball smacked into his shoulder, sickening him with the shock. As he staggered dizzily, a Bedouin whipped a turban cloth about his feet and jerked viciously. Clarney pitched headlong down the steps to strike with stunning force. A gun stock and a brown hand went up to dash out his brains, but an imperious command halted the blow. Slay him not, but bind him hand and foot. As Steve struggled dazedly against many gripping hands, it seemed to him that somewhere he had heard that imperious voice before. The American's downfall had occurred in a matter of seconds. Even as Steve's second shot had cracked, 
Yar Ali had half-severed a raider's arm and himself received a numbing blow from a rifle stock on his left shoulder. His sheepskin coat, worn despite the desert heat, saved his hide from half a dozen slashing knives. A rifle was discharged so close to his face that the powder burnt him fiercely, bringing a bloodthirsty yell from the maddened Afghan. As Yar Ali swung up his dripping blade, the rifleman, ashy-faced, lifted his rifle above his head in both hands to parry the downward blow, whereat the Afridi, with a yelp of ferocious exultation, shifted as a jungle cat strikes and plunged his long knife into the Arab's belly. But at that instant, a rifle stock swung with all the hearty ill-will its wielder could evoke, crashed against the giant's head, laying open the scalp and dashing him to his knees. With the dogged and silent ferocity of his breed, Yar Ali staggered blindly up again, slashing at foes he could scarcely see, but a storm of blows battered him down again, nor did his attackers cease beating him until he lay still. They would have finished him in short order then, but for another peremptory order from their chief, whereupon they bound the senseless knife-man and flung him down alongside Steve, who was fully conscious and aware of the savage hurt of the bullet in his shoulder. He glared up at the tall Arab who stood looking down at him. "'Well, Sahib,' said this one, and Steve saw he was no Bedouin. "'Do you not remember me?' Steve scowled. A bullet wound is no aid to concentration. "'You look familiar. By Judas, you are. Nuruddin el-Mekru. I am honored. The Sahib remembers.' Nuruddin salaamed mockingly. "'And you remember, no doubt, the occasion on which you made a present of this?' The dark eyes shadowed with bitter menace and the sheik indicated a thin white scar on the angle of his jaw. "'I remember,' snarled Clarney, whom pain and anger did not tend to make docile. "'It was in Somaliland years ago. You were in the slave trade then. Wretch of a nigger escaped from you and took refuge with me. You walked into my camp one night in your high-handed way, started a row, and in the ensuing scrap you got a butcher knife across your face. Wish I'd cut your lousy throat.' "'You had your chance,' answered the Arab. "'Now the tables are turned.' I thought your stamping ground lay west, growled Clarney. Yemen and the Somali country. I quit the slave trade long ago, answered the sheik. It is an outworn game. I led a band of thieves in Yemen for a time. Then again I was forced to change my location. I came here with a few faithful followers, and, by Allah, those wild men nearly slit my throat at first. But I overcame their suspicions, and now I lead more men than have followed me in years. They whom you fought off yesterday were my men, scouts I had sent out ahead. My oasis lies far to the west. We have ridden for many days, for I was on my way to this very city. When my scouts rode in and told me of two wanderers, I did not alter my course, for I had business first in Belay del Jin. We rode into the city from the west and saw your tracks in the sand. We followed them, and you were blind buffalo who heard not our coming. Steve snarled. You wouldn't have caught us so easy, only we thought no Bedouin would dare come into Karashir. Nuridin nodded. But I am no Bedouin. I have traveled far and seen many lands and many races, and I have read many books. I know that fear is smoke, that the dead are dead, and that jinn and ghosts and curses are mists that the wind blows away. It was because of the tales of the Red Stone that I came into this forsaken desert, but it has taken months to persuade my men to ride with me here. But I am here, and your presence is a delightful surprise. Doubtless you have guessed why I had you taken alive. I have more elaborate entertainment planned for you and that path and swine. Now, I take the fire of Ashurbanipal, and we will go. He turned toward the dais, and one of his men, a bearded one-eyed giant, exclaimed, Hold, my lord! Ancient evil reigned here before the days of Mohammed. 
The djinn howl through these halls when the winds blow, and men have seen ghosts dancing on the walls beneath the moon. No man of mortals has dared this black city for a thousand years, save one, half a century ago, who fled shrieking. You who have come here from Yemen, you do not know the ancient curse on this foul city and this evil stone which pulses like the red heart of Satan. We have followed you here against our judgment because you have proven yourself a strong man and have said you hold a charm against all evil beings. You said you but wished to look on this mysterious gem, but now we see it is your intention to take it for yourself. Do not offend the jinn. Nay, Nuradan, do not offend the jinn, chorused the other Bedouins. The sheik's own hard-bitten ruffians, standing in a compact group somewhat apart from the Bedouins, said nothing. Hardened to crimes and deeds of impiety, they were less affected by the superstitions of the desert men, to whom the dread tale of the accursed city had been repeated for centuries. Steve, even while hating Nuradin with concentrated venom, realized the magnetic power of the man, the innate leadership that had enabled him to overcome thus far the fears and traditions of ages. "'The curse is laid on infidels who invade the city,' answered Nuradin, "'not on the faithful. See, in this chamber have we overcome our Kafar foes.' A white-bearded desert hawk shook his head. "'The curse is more ancient than Mohammed, and wrecks not of race or creed. Evil men reared this black city in the dawn of the beginning of days.' They oppressed our ancestors of the black tents and warred among themselves. Aye, the black walls of this foul city were stained with blood, and echoed to the shouts of unholy revel and the whispers of dark intrigues. Thus came the stone to the city. There dwelt a magician at the court of Ashurbanipal, and the black wisdom of ages was not denied to him. To gain honor and power for himself, he dared the horrors of a nameless vast cavern in a dark, untraveled land, and from those fiend-haunted depths he brought that blazing gem, which is carved with the frozen flames of hell. By reasons of his fearful power and black magic, he put a spell on the demon which guarded the ancient gem and so stole away the stone, and the demon slept in the cavern unknowing. So this magician, Zuthotan by name, dwelt in the court of the Sultan Ashurbanipal, and did magic and forecast events by scanning the lurid deeps of the stone into which no eyes but his could look unblinded. And men called the stone the fire of Ashurbanipal in honor of the king. But evil came upon the kingdom, and men cried out that it was the curse of the jinn, and the sultan in great fear bade Zuthotan take the gem and cast it into the cavern from which he had taken it, lest worse ill befall them. Yet it was not the magician's will to give up the gem wherein he read strange secrets of pre-Adamite days, and he fled to the rebel city of Karashir, where soon civil war broke out, and men strove with one another to possess the gem. Then the king, who ruled the city, coveting the stone, seized the magician and put him to death by torture and in this very room he watched him die. With the gem in his hand, the king sat upon the throne, even as he has sat throughout the centuries, even as now he sits. The Arab's fingers stabbed at the moldering bones on the marble throne, and the wild desert men blenched. Even Nuruddin's own scoundrels recoiled, catching their breath, but the sheik showed no sign of perturbation. As Zuthotan died, continued the old Bedouin, he cursed the stone whose magic had not saved him, and he shrieked aloud the fearful words which undid the spell he had put upon the demon in the cavern and set the monster free. And crying out on the forgotten gods, Cthulhu and Koth and Yogg-Sothoth and all the pre-Adamite dwellers in the black cities under the sea and the caverns of the earth, he called upon them to take back that which was theirs, and with his dying breath pronounced doom on the false king. And that doom was that the king should sit on his throne, holding in his hand the fire of Ashurbanipal until the thunder of Judgment Day. Thereat the great stone cried out as a living thing cries, and the king and his soldiers saw a black cloud spinning up from the floor, and out of the cloud blew a fetid wind, 
and out of the wind came a grisly shape which stretched forth fearsome paws and laid them on the king, who shriveled and died at their touch. And the soldiers fled screaming, and all the people of the city ran forth wailing into the desert where they perished or gained through the waste to the far oasis towns. Karashir lay silent and deserted, the haunt of the lizard and the jackal. And when some of the desert people ventured into the city, they found the king dead on his throne, clutching the blazing gem. But they dared not lay hand upon it, for they knew the demon lurked near to guard it through all the ages, as he lurks near even as we stand here. The warriors shuddered involuntarily and glanced about, and Nuredin said, Why did he not come forth when the Franks entered the chamber? Is he deaf that the sound of the combat has not awakened him? We have not touched the gem, answered the old Bedouin, nor had the Franks molested it. Men have looked on it and lived, but no mortal may touch it and survive. Nuredin started to speak, gazed at the stubborn, uneasy faces, and realized the futility of argument. His attitude changed abruptly. I am master here, he snapped, dropping a hand to his holster. I have not sweat and bled for this gem to be balked at the last by groundless fears. Stand back, all. Let any man cross me at the peril of his head. He faced them, his eyes blazing, and they fell back, cowed by the force of his ruthless personality. He strode boldly up the marble steps, and the Arabs caught their breath, recoiling toward the door. Yar Ali, conscious at last, groaned dismally. God, thought Steve, what a barbaric scene. Bound captives on the dust-heaped floor, wild warriors clustered about, gripping their weapons, the raw, acrid scent of blood and burnt powder still fouling the air, corpses strewn in a horrid welter of blood, brains, and entrails, and on the dais, the hawk-faced sheik, oblivious to all except the evil crimson glow and the skeleton fingers that rested on the marble throne. A tense silence gripped all as Nuredin stretched forth his hand slowly, as if hypnotized by the throbbing crimson light. And in Steve's subconsciousness there shuddered a dim echo, as of something vast and loathsome waking suddenly from an age-long slumber. The American's eyes moved instinctively towards the grim cyclopean walls. The jewel's glow had altered strangely. It burned a deeper, darker red, angry and menacing. "'Heart of all evil,' murmured the sheik. How many princes died for thee in the beginnings of happenings? Surely the blood of kings throbs in thee. The sultans and the princesses and the generals who wore thee, they are dust and are forgotten. But thou blazest with majesty undimmed, fire of the world. Nuridin seized the stone. A shuddery wail broke from the Arabs, cut through by a sharp, inhuman cry. To Steve it seemed horribly that the great jewel had cried out like a living thing. The stone slipped from the sheik's hand. Nuredin might have dropped it. To Steve, it looked as though it leapt convulsively, as a live thing might leap. It rolled from the dais, bounding from step to step, with Nuredin springing after it, cursing as his clutching hand missed it. It struck the floor, veered sharply, and despite the deep dust, rolled like a revolving ball of fire toward the back wall. Nuredin was close upon it. It struck the wall. The sheik's hand reached for it. A scream of mortal fear ripped the tense silence. Without warning, the solid wall had opened. Out of the black wall that gaped there, a tentacle shot and gripped the sheik's body as a python girdles its victim and jerked him headlong into the darkness. And then the wall showed blank and solid once more. Only from within sounded a hideous, high-pitched muffled screaming that chilled the blood of the listeners. Howling wordlessly, the Arabs stampeded, jammed in a battling, screeching mass in the doorway, tore through and raced madly down the wide stairs. Steve and Yar Ali, lying helplessly, 
heard the frenzied clamor of their flight fade away into the distance, and gazed in dumb horror at the grim wall. The shrieks had faded into a more horrific silence. Holding their breath, they heard suddenly a sound that froze the blood in their veins, the soft sliding of metal or stone in a groove. At the same time, the hidden door began to open, and Steve caught a glimmer in the blackness that might have been the glitter of monstrous eyes. He closed his eyes. He dared not look upon whatever horror slunk from that hideous black well. He knew that there are strains the human brain cannot stand, and every primitive instinct in his soul cried out to him that this thing was nightmare and lunacy. He sensed that Yara Lee likewise closed his eyes, and the two lay like dead men. Clarney heard no sound, but he sensed the presence of a horrific evil too grisly for human comprehension, of an invader from outer gulfs and far black reaches of cosmic being. A deadly cold pervaded the chamber, and Steve felt the glare of inhuman eyes sear through his closed lids and freeze his consciousness. If he looked, if he opened his eyes, he knew stark black madness would be his instant lot. He felt a soul-shakingly foul breath against his face and knew that the monster was bending close above him, but he lay like a man frozen in a nightmare. He clung to one thought. Neither he nor Yar Ali had touched the jewel this horror guarded. Then he no longer smelled the foul odor. The coldness in the air grew appreciably less, and he heard again the secret door slide in its groove. The fiend was returning to its hiding place. Not all the legions of hell could have prevented Steve's eyes from opening a trifle. He had only a glimpse as the hidden door slid to, and that one glimpse was enough to drive all consciousness from his brain. Steve Clarney, iron-nerved adventurer, fainted for the only time in his checkered life. How long he lay there Steve never knew, but it could not have been long, for he was roused by Yar Ali's whisper. Lie still, Sahib, a little shifting of my body and I can reach thy cords with my teeth. Steve felt the Afghan's powerful teeth at work on his bonds, and as he lay with his face jammed into the thick dust and his wounded shoulder began to throb agonizingly, he had forgotten it until now, he began to gather the wandering threads of his consciousness, and it all came back to him. How much, he wondered dazily, had been the nightmares of delirium born from suffering and the thirst that caked his throat. The fight with the Arabs had been real, the bonds and the wounds showed that, but the grisly doom of the sheik, the thing that had crept out of the black entrance in the wall, Surely that had been a figment of delirium. Nuredin had fallen into a well or a pit of some sort. Steve felt his hands were free, and he rose to a sitting posture, fumbling for a pocket knife the Arabs had overlooked. He did not look up or about the chamber as he slashed the cords that bound his ankles, and then freed Yar Ali, working awkwardly because his left arm was stiff and useless. "'Where are the Bedouins?' he asked as the Afghan rose, lifting him to his feet. "'Allah, Sahib,' whispered Yar Ali. "'Are you mad? Have you forgotten?' Let us go quickly before the jinn returns. It was a nightmare, muttered Steve. Look, the jewel's back on the throne. His voice died out. Again that red glow throbbed about the ancient throne, reflecting from the moldering skull. Again in the outstretched finger bones pulsed the fire of Ashurbanipal. But at the foot of the throne lay another object that had not been there before. The severed head of Nuruddin el-Mekru stared sightlessly up at the gray light filtering through the stone ceiling. The bloodless lips were drawn back from the teeth in a ghastly grin. The staring eyes mirrored an intolerable horror. In the thick dust of the floor, three spores showed. One of the shakes where he had followed the red jewel as it rolled to the wall, and above it, two other sets of tracks, coming to the throne and returning to the wall. Vast, shapeless tracks, as of splayed feet, 
taloned and gigantic, neither human nor animal. My God, choked Steve. It was true. And the thing, the, the thing I saw. Steve remembered the flight from that chamber as a rushing nightmare in which he and his companion hurtled headlong down an endless stair that was a gray well of fear, raced blindly through dusty silent chambers past the glowering idol in the mighty hall and into the blazing light of the desert sun where they fell slavering, fighting for breath. Again, Steve was roused by the Afridi's voice. Sahib, Sahib, in the name of Allah the Compassionate, our luck has turned. Steve looked at his companion as a man might look in a trance. The big Afghan's garments were in tatters and blood-soaked. He was stained with dust and caked with blood, and his voice was a croak. But his eyes were alight with hope, and he pointed with a trembling finger. In the shade of yon ruined wall, he croaked, striving to moisten his black lips. Allah, il Allah! The horses of the men we killed, with canteens and food pouches at the saddle-horns. Those dogs fled without halting for the steeds of their comrades. New life surged up into Steve's bosom, and he rose, staggering. Out of here, he mumbled. Out of here, quick. Like dying men, they stumbled to their horses, tore them loose, and climbed fumblingly into the saddles. We'll lead the spare mounts, croaked Steve, and Yara Lee nodded emphatic agreement. Be like we shall need them ere we sight the coast. Though their tortured nerves screamed for the water that swung in canteens at the saddle horns, they turned the mounts aside, and, swaying in the saddle, rode like flying corpses down the long sandy street of Karasher, between the ruined palaces and the crumbling columns, crossed the fallen wall, and swept out into the desert. Not once did either glance back toward that black pile of ancient horror, nor did either speak until the ruins faded into the hazy distance. Then, and only then, did they draw rein and ease their thirst. Allah, il Allah, said Yar Ali piously. Those dogs have beaten me until it is as though every bone in my body were broken. Dismount, I beg thee, Sahib, and let me probe for that accursed bullet, and dress thy shoulder to the best of my meager ability. While this was going on, Yar Ali spoke, avoiding his friend's eye. You said, Sahib, you said something about, about seeing? What saw ye in Allah's name? A strong shudder shook the American's steely frame. You didn't look when, when the, the thing put the jewel in the skeleton's hand and left Nuruddin's head on the dais? By Allah, not I, swore Yar Ali. My eyes were as closed as if they had been welded together by the molten irons of Satan. Steve made no reply until the comrades had once more swung into the saddle and started on their long trek for the coast, which, with spare horses, food, water, and weapons, they had a good chance to reach. I looked, the American said somberly. I wish I had not. I know I'll dream about it for the rest of my life. I had only a glance. I couldn't describe it as a man describes an earthly thing. God help me, it wasn't earthly or sane either. Mankind isn't the first owner of the earth. There were beings here before his coming. Now, survivals of hideously ancient epochs. Maybe spheres of alien dimensions press unseen on this material universe today. Sorcerers have called up sleeping devils before now and controlled them with magic. It is not unreasonable to suppose an Assyrian magician could invoke an elemental demon out of the earth to avenge him and guard something that must have come out of hell in the first place. I'll try to tell you what I glimpsed, then we'll never speak of it again. It was gigantic and black and shadowy. It was a hulking monstrosity that walked upright like a man, but it was like a toad, too, and it was winged and tentacled. I saw only its back. If I'd seen the front of it, its face. I'd have undoubtedly lost my mind. 
The old Arab was right. God help us. It was the monster that Zuthultan called up out of the dark, blind caverns of the earth to guard the fire of Ashurbanipal. <laughs>